Hey, everybody. This is Manny Faces, producer and host of Newsbeat, where we shine a light on social justice and political issues that often don't get enough attention or the right kind of attention. Now, you probably know us for our award-winning full episodes, unique mashups blending interviews with experts, activists, and those affected by injustice with compelling soundtracks and original lyrical contributions from some of today's brightest indie rap artists. We also like to throw in special bonus episodes, like a recent one exploring updates in the movement for bail reform and the stunning revelations in the documents known as the Afghanistan Papers. On this bonus episode, we felt it was important to give y'all a quick, unbiased rundown about the recent drama with Iran. And with all the talking heads and politicking drowning out the mainstream news networks, we're just interested in breaking it down so we can get a little better understanding of what's really happening without all the extra. So here's our managing editor, Rashed Mian, and editor-in-chief, Chris Tawarski, to get us going. Rashed? Thanks, Manny. Given the current situation with Iran, we were compelled to address the chaotic developments and hopefully add some critical context. Hello. In a dramatic escalation of tensions in the Middle East, a U.S. airstrike has killed Iran's most important military commander. And we start with a developing story out of Iraq, where we're seeing angry crowds attack the U.S. embassy in Baghdad. Today's violence growing more intense after hundreds of pro-Iranian protesters march through what's normally a restricted part of the Iraqi capital. Good evening. We're coming on the air with breaking news. The Pentagon confirming that Iran has launched a series of ballistic missiles targeting American forces in Iraq. So let's recap. On January 3rd, President Donald Trump ordered a drone strike that killed Qasem Soleimani, an influential military commander and one of the most powerful senior officials in Iran, known for his particularly brutal tactics. The assassination was in response to an attack in Iraq by an Iran-backed militia that killed a military contractor and a subsequent siege of the American embassy in Iraq that the U.S. blamed on Iran. And Soleimani's assassination sent shockwaves across the Middle East and worried American allies in Europe. Many of those nations were party to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, better known as the Iran nuclear deal, which the Trump administration withdrew from in 2018. And here we are, in response to Soleimani's slaying, Iran suspended its commitments to the 2015 deal and also responded militarily by attacking two U.S. coalition bases where American and Iraqi troops are housed. Here's how Trump responded to the missile attack the following morning. Good morning. I'm pleased to inform you the American people should be extremely grateful and happy. No Americans were harmed in last night's attack by the Iranian regime. We suffered no casualties. All of our soldiers are safe, and only minimal damage was sustained at our military bases. Our great American forces are prepared for anything. Iran appears to be standing down, which is a good thing for all parties concerned and a very good thing for the world. Now, it's impossible to predict the long-term ramifications of Trump's decision to kill Soleimani, an action past presidents reportedly considered extreme. But the short-term results are clear. Protests by tens of thousands of Iranians and the aforementioned missile attacks on two bases. This all comes just weeks after massive anti-government protests in which hundreds of Iranian civilians were killed and thousands arrested by the regime, according to the United Nations. Joining us to discuss the recent developments is Dr. Saul Rod, a research fellow at the National Iranian American Council. Dr. Rod, 
Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. So we think context is always important, uh, especially in a situation such as this. Can you explain for listeners who may not be too aware of the past, uh, the evolution of U.S.-Iranian relations beginning with the 1953 coup? Of course. So uh, something that's interesting about looking at the, the relationships of the two sides, obviously, in contemporary society in the United States, uh, we assume the sort of enmity between the United States and Iran because of the embassy seizure of 1979. But of course, before the revolution of 1979, Iran and the U.S. had very good relations when Iran was ruled by a monarchy. However, what's often missing in the historical narrative from the American side is the coup d'etat of 1953, in which the United States and Britain removed a uh, democratically elected prime minister, Mohammad Mossadegh, and uh, installed, reinstalled, I should say, a king, the monarch, who was then later deposed in the 1979 revolution. So there's distrust on the Iranian side. And of course, because of 1979 and the hostages, there's distrust on the American side. So one of the arguments that we've tried to make is that if we can understand that both sides have mutual grievances, then maybe there's a path of moving forward rather than sort of staying on, you know, grievances of both sides, which, by the way, just to point out, interestingly enough, really parallels the situation we find ourselves in now again. It's just this tit-for-tat sort of uh, finger-pointing, whereas uh, we had the opportunity to move forward from that with uh, the diplomatic solution, which was the JCPOA, and I'm sure we'll get into that more, but that's the, that's the framing of kind of what the, what's missing in the story is 1953. So important. Thank you. Yeah, Dr. Rod. So you just mentioned that the uh, JCPOA, that was a pivotal moment for the Obama administration um, in, in, you know, in regards to Iran. And some have argued that the Trump administration's decision to back out of the Iran nuclear deal has helped get us to this point. Even U.S. intelligence, I believe, and the International Atomic Energy Agency had said that Iran was living up to those commitments. So how has America's decision to abandon the agreement uh, and compounded by the reinstatement of these economic sanctions impacted Iran? Well, it's not, it's not that it's helped us get into the situation. It is directly responsible for why we're in the situation. Like I said, there is this entire history, there's this entire adversarial history between these two states. But what the uh, JCPOA, what the Iran nuclear deal encompassed was an international agreement. It took years of diplomatic work and negotiation. And everybody, every international body, said that Iran was complying with the deal. The IAEA has inspectors there to make sure that Iran is complying with the deal. That's the entire point of the deals, to have monitors there to make sure that Iran is prevented from getting a nuclear weapon. It's allowed to have peaceful nuclear program for energy, but what the deal was trying to do was make sure that they're not going to get a weapon. And it ensured that. Once the Trump administration quit the deal and implemented sanctions, we slowly saw everything unravel. And if you look at it, the first year after the U.S. quit the deal, Iran complied by every part of the JCPOA. It stayed exactly in the agreement and complied by every single part that it was supposed to. But after a year of really brutal sanctions by the U.S. and secondary sanctions that didn't really allow channels uh, like financial transactions to occur, the other parties to the deal, the European parties, also couldn't provide Iran with any of the economic benefits that it was promised in the deal. So after a year of abiding by it, but getting nothing out of it. In fact, you could argue they were punished. They were being punished for abiding by the deal. 
after one year, they went from, you know, a sort of strategy of patience to measured, uh, measured reductions in the deal. And all of that was never to abandon it. They never wanted to quit the deal, but to get other parties to the deal to fulfill their promises. In fact, even after the Soleimani assassination, when Iran announced its final reduction and said that they're not bound by the commitments within the JCPOA, they're very careful to say that they're still not quitting the deal, that the framework of the deal is in place. And if sanctions are lifted, and Iran gets the benefits that it's promised, then it would go back to full commitment to the deal. Right, right. And so you mentioned uh, Soleimani, whose assassination really became this turning point recently. You know, Middle Eastern experts know who Qasem Soleimani is. Military experts know who he is. Um, but the general public, I think, uh, you know, aren't too aware of him up until now. So can you just tell us about him and how he sort of rose to prominence inside Iran? Oh, this is someone who, you know, came from a very average background in Iran. Um, he rose through the ranks. He was uh, an officer in the military during the Iran-Iraq war. And he's served his entire life in uh, some form of military service to the Iranian state uh, since you know he was basically 20 years old until his death. By the late 90s, he rose to prominence and uh, in the Quds Force which is a part of the Revolutionary Guard. So there is also a distinction in the IRGC, in the Revolutionary Guard, the Quds Force, which is where he was a general of, is focused on external threats to the state. So the, the domestic policies, the domestic uh, repression that the IRGC has certainly committed within Iran is not really within the purview of the Quds Force, which is focused, like I said, on borders. That's why, you know, the... Soleimani and the IRGC were part of the forces that were fighting against ISIS in Iraq. This is something that the United States is clearly, you know, it's not, there's no secret to that. Um, that's a major role that he has played in the last several years was fighting ISIS in Iraq. So this is the person, and you know, in Iran, he actually didn't rise to becoming such a known public figure until recent years as well. He wasn't, he's not really someone who has uh, claimed the limelight. He had never tried to run for any kind of political office. He was very just dedicated to his military position within the state. And just uh, coming off of that, uh, so people have described some of the, his brutal tactics and, you know, he's obviously uh, is referred to as a bad guy um, here in the U.S. So, I mean, can you just explain sort of his role in, in some particularly tragic events? So, of course, when you look at the, he's dealing with all Iranian foreign policy in terms of his position as a general. And part of Iranian foreign policy was to support Bashar al-Assad in Syria. And of course, Assad is a dictator. He's you know, killed his own people. And support for that is part of where we get this idea that he's a bad guy. And of course, he's carried out really... Br I mean, it's... Uh, to talk about militaries in terms of good guys and bad guys is, is often interesting to me. But, um, but he certainly carried out the 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 actions in Syria are the biggest reason why I would say he's a bad guy, because you're supporting a dictatorship in Syria that is targeting its own people, and it the civil war in Syria uh, saw hundreds of thousands of casualties, millions of people displaced, and that that has to be something that we clearly can't ignore. Internally, domestically in Iran, he's still a pillar of that regime, right? Regardless of his, his position of 
being part of the defensive structure, he's still a pillar of a system that people see as oppressive because in very many ways it is oppressive. It is an authoritarian state. And so that aspect is part of the reason why people also within Iran and certainly outside of Iran um, see him as a negative figure. In, in response to his uh, death, we saw you know thousands mourn Soleimani, but there's also a considerable number of Iranians who disagreed with his tactics and, and what the regime has done both at home and internationally. So what's the political dynamic like in Iran? Well, like any other political dynamic, it's very complicated. Um, Iran is not a monolith in any way, uh, whether you're talking about religion, ethnicity, political views. It's, there are uh, you know, groups that absolutely hate and despise the regime. There are groups that actually like it because, not surprisingly, they benefit from it. And you know, there's a lot of people somewhere in between. Of course, we have seen protests decade after decade in Iran since the revolution and decade after decade before the revolution, right, which is what led to a revolution. So Iranians have really the story of their national self-determination and wanting democracy and freedom has been ongoing for a very long time. And they continue to do that. And this what is sort of um, I don't know if you want to call it tragic or frustrating about the action that the Trump administration took is. There was pressure actually building on the Iranian government, as we saw two months ago when there were protests against the government. Now those protests have died down, and we've created with our actions in the United States uh, a sort of rally around the flag moment where you probably wouldn't have gotten a similar reaction to almost any other figure in the country. And that's why I said he's a complicated figure. While he, he has people who hate him and see him as a bad guy, within the country, He's actually, a, he was, I should say, a very popular public figure. Poll after poll has shown that, and we can now see that sort of visually with the, the outpouring. This has been seen by many, many Iranians as a blow to their sovereignty, to their national pride, and coupled with the rhetoric that has come from the United States, right? So you've assassinated this top official and you followed up by saying, if you're President Trump, by tweeting that you're going to target Iranian cultural sites. That's a direct threat to, you know, it's not a military threat. It's a threat to their culture, to their heritage. And again, these all become internalized as uh, attacks on their identity. Right. So, so the, the assassination state. isn't just about Soleimani, but it could also be what he, it represents concerning Trump's, uh, uh, what he's been saying on Twitter and all the other actions that they've done. Absolutely. And, you know, you have to consider it. There are, um, there are many Americans who uh, take issue with our current president. But if we were to be in some way, if one of our, you know, most important political figures was assassinated, I have no doubt that Americans who disagree or don't even like Trump or have said things like, this is not my president, would still rally around behind this country and this president, because the sense would be that we have come under attack. Right. Um, now, you touched on this um, a little bit previously, but the, the anti-government protesters, what do the Iranian people want? And also, I think what's lost a lot of times in the, in the discussions on mainstream media is what the impact these economic sanctions have had on them. Uh, like I said earlier, I have a difficult time saying anything, you know, this is what the Iranian people want. Mm -hmm. The Iranian people are not one block. Um, mm -hmm. There are people who want regime change. There are people who want reform. There are people who want, would like to sustain 
at least parts of what exists now. So, you know, if you look at the the way that the government operates, it's really it's almost like two separate governments. You have a democratically elected body, which is represented by their like legislative branch and an executive branch, and then there's the supreme leadership, which is a non-elected and in, in the case of the supreme leader himself, it's a it's a lifelong uh, position. So, that's where there's a authoritarian state that overlays what is like a democratic apparatus somewhere underneath it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are people, for instance, who would support the democratically elected portion of the government, but don't have a, but take issue with the leadership, with the, with the supreme leadership. And there's the reverse. There are people who, again, if you benefit from the state the way that it's laid out, then you would oftentimes support it. If, if their um, policies are policies that you support, then you support it. And this is the case with any state. But in terms of the economy, in terms of economic sanctions, that's something that affects everyone. That's uh, affected people from, just broadly speaking, the fact that the currency has devalued to the extent that it has inflation. You know, this is going to cause problems with uh, pricing of food. I have, I know people who are very comfortable middle class to upper middle class, who will say things to me like, and, and they say it with the caveat, they're like, this is not even a big deal that we're saying it. But for the first time, you know, we can't afford meat. Like we're, and we're well off. And their concern when they say it isn't to say, oh, feel sorry for me because I can't afford meat. But they're imagining how people who are much worse off than them are feeling now. So it is affecting the, the whole of the country, except for, to be fair, again, you can't make an entire generalization. There are still people who are very well off and they're doing fine despite sanctions. But the vast majority of, of the people in the country are suffering through sanctions. Wow. And this is the last uh, question for me, but for you personally, what has been your sort of visceral reaction to, uh, I guess, the latest uh, eruptions in this conflict? Uh, well, last week, um, after uh, news of the assassination, the, the initial reaction was just being scared, if I'm to be honest. You know, it's yeah. just... Um, fear of finally hitting this red line or crossing this line that that we can't go back from, and that's a full scale conflict. Um, and for you know, for me, when I was when I was an undergrad, that's when we uh, invaded Iraq, and I remember this feeling. I remember this feeling, all of the buildup, all of the rhetoric, and I remember then all you know, people who were in my generation, at least, who had witnessed. Uh, 9/11 at a very young age felt were were shaken by those events, and so now it's sort of this redundant "here we go again" kind of a moment. But as someone who is uh, has family in Iran, it has an extra layer of fear because the people who are in danger are directly, you know, they're your own family members. It's like your aunts, your uncles, your cousins. But of course, I, I felt very similarly when we were on the path to invading Iraq. And I would say 17 years later, justifiably so, because that war has done nothing but cause destruction. And so there's a very real, and I'm happy to say that so far, the reaction we see after uh, Iran's retaliation is restraint. And I'm hoping that we can maintain that restraint because in reality, no one, there's no benefit to be had on any side. Like everyone will suffer in this kind of a situation. So hopefully cool heads will prevail and we'll be able to go back to, you know, going back to the JCPOA. That's why we had the JCPOA in place. And had we stayed in it, 
we would not be in the situation that we're in right now. Right. And, and just the last thing really quick is just, just moving forward. Uh, you, you've mentioned that uh, we sort of leveled off now on the surface, uh, but we know that the U.S. is still going to be in the Middle East, in Iraq, Afghanistan, um, and other countries in North Africa. So then the entire region. Um, and, you know, Iran has considerable influence and there's other actors in the region. And Iran has also sort of mastered this asymmetrical warfare through proxies. So um, is it short-sighted to think that this is just going to end here with a couple of, with a couple dozen um, ballistic missiles targeting Iraqi bases? Well, it's short-sighted as long as we stay within the same, same ideological framing and how we look at international relations, and especially from the side of the United States. I mean, there's no question to the fact that the, the U.S. is the most powerful country in the world. Comparing U.S. strength and Iranian strength is laughable. It's not, they are not comparable states. But the U.S. can make a choice as to how we move forward in our entire foreign policy. Are we going to continue, I mean, you brought up you know, Iraq, Syria, all these other places that we have troops. But this particular president, interestingly enough, ran on a platform saying, I want to bring the troops home. So we can hope that the U.S. actually does do something like that, does remove troops from the Middle East, because so far our presence there has not led to, it certainly hasn't led to stability. No, that argument is just looking at it. The argument is clearly false. It hasn't led to democratic movements. It hasn't led to any of those things. It's in fact continuously led to more instability and more destruction. And one, uh, one other thing I know I'm harping on the JCPOA, but because I think there's a point that's often lost on it. it this wasn't about, oh, the United States and Iran have detente. That's a big deal. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying it's not, but there's a larger implication to it. It really was uh, an international effort. It was a model for diplomacy and cooperation between adversaries. And that's the key point. It doesn't mean that the world is going to, you know, suddenly everyone's just going to get along and be friends, but there is a rational and intelligent way we can move forward when we know that the impact is global. And what it was about was nuclear non-proliferation. So we have two things that are very important to our species. This doesn't concern any nation states. One is climate change. The other is nuclear proliferation, right? These are things that can actually threaten our entire planet in terms of our, like, human life on this planet. So that requires global cooperation. There's no way to tackle those issues with one nation state or power dynamics as they exist today. So if we want to tackle those issues, this can be a model of how to move forward. Uh, That's great, Dr. Rod. Uh, We really appreciate you coming on. And uh, I'm glad you spent so much time focusing on JCOA because I think people forget about it and they think it's just a pack, like you mentioned, but there's uh, just so many other uh, parts of it uh, that was important, especially the other nations that were included in this deal. It wasn't just US and Iran. Um, so thank you again for coming on. And re- we really appreciate thank your insight. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. There you have it. Thank you for listening to another bonus episode of Newsbeat. Stay tuned for more full-fledged award-winning episodes that shed light on social justice, civil liberties, and political news that you won't quite find or hear anywhere else. My name is Manny Faces on behalf of the entire Newsbeat and Maury Creative Studios teams. Thank you so much for listening. Hit us up at usnewsbeat.com. Like us, rate us, review us on your podcast app, and follow us on social media at usnewsbeat. We'll be back soon. Until then, peace.